Re-evaluating historical events that we think we know well, but through a contemporary lens can be an enlightening experience, especially those around war and its aftermath, as we've just heard. Take the Holocaust. Despite the unprecedented horror of that genocide, Western countries, including Australia, were reluctant to shift their refugee policies towards Jewish victims in the late 1940s and early 50s. Jewish communities had to take it upon themselves to organise the boats and the resettlement, insisting publicly and behind the scenes that no government money would be spent whatever on the rescue project. Well, in Australia, one determined couple, Leo and Minna Fink, led the charge and their legacy looms large over Australia's Jewish communities. But their story is also a case study into savvy lobbying that pivoted the modern word constantly when the odds turned against them. Historian Margaret Taft has written about them and she joins me now to talk about their remarkable efforts in Leo and Minna Fink for the greater good. She's here to tell us why they inspired her so much. Welcome. Thank you, Geraldine. Thank you for having me. Um, do you do you agree that uh, they were incredibly clever? I mean, they were both humanitarians as well, but they were smart in the way they prosecuted their cases against all odds. Absolutely. And I think that today we talk about people building resilience in order to overcome adversity. I think they were incredibly resilient. And one of the things that I look at is not just how savvy they were in their networking and how they built the right platforms by which they could both, during the war, work towards relief and then quickly pivot post-war towards resettlement. But I have to try to think about what really interested me was why. Why they did it. Why did they take it on? And that was the question that prompted me, really. And did you, I'm hopping over, I was going to come to this, but did you come to a conclusion? Well, I think that given the life experiences they had, and in the book I do delve go quite extensively into their early lives, they were deeply, deeply connected to the Jewish world and to Jewish humanity. They saw themselves as a link in the chain of that vast world a world that had largely been obliterated in Europe Mm. and they saw it themselves as being part of that world. And it always intrigues me to think why do some people run into the fire when everyone else runs away from it? What compels them to do that? Well, that's your point, that they were, li- <clears throat> they were living a very comfortable life, um, yep. um, Polish. Leo was yes. Polish. What was Minna, by the way? She was also born in Bialystok. Oh, Bialystok. As was Leo. Oh. And they, she was 12 years his junior. And, and they'd come they, here pre-war. Well, he came here with his brothers in 1928. So we find them, uh, well, you start the book, mm. in March 1947. With the yep. arrival of this fascinating, you do make it live, I must say, the Johann de Witt, yes. a ship carrying around 700 Jewish refugees, and you describe yes. the incredibly emotional scenes as they're yes. greeted by members of the Australian Jewish community when they dock at Sydney Harbour. But Australia had a pretty unfriendly attitude towards Jewish refugees. Yes. They'd yes. been here since the First Fleet, but there was a strict quota, wasn't there, for Jewish arrival Correct. on boats? Correct. They were only allowed until, to be 25% yeah. of passengers. Correct. That was up until I think about 1949 and it was the, after some lobbying, the quota was lifted. But on a handshake agreement 
with the Minister of Immigration that Jewish immigrants would never exceed more than 3,000 in a year. And that was adhered to. So Leo Fink took on the immigration minister of the time, Arthur Corwell, yes. and yes. I might add the press. I mean, th- this yes. is what is so interesting. They really had to cope with pylons, didn't they, in, yes. in the late 40s yes. sense? Yes, yes, absolutely. Look, um, all governments, and it wasn't just the media and all, all governments have two things at their disposal, and it doesn't matter which political persuasion, two things. They can control the number of immigrants that come in and they can control the type of immigrant that comes in. And all countries do it. And in the post-war period, when Australia was embarking on a very audacious and bold immigration plan to grow the, grow the population, mainly because the war, the war had exposed its, Australia's vulnerability and we needed to be able to defend ourselves and we had to grow the economy. So... And to do that, you couldn't do it through natural growth. You needed a high number of immigration. So there were certain deals that Australian government did strike with other countries and refugee organisations. They never supported Jewish immigration. Hmm. So that platform had to be taken on by the Jewish Welfare Society and by individuals themselves. And, of course, he had to go elsewhere to get more support. But uh, he really... He was a bit <laughs> naughty with uh, Corwell. He he sort of yes. he gambled in a way because there had yes. already been one before that a ship which had caused yes. a lot of fuss. Yes. yes, and he just took the the risk really that he'd be yes. able to talk Corwell around. He took the risk because he was a, he was a very calculated risk taker. He knew Corwell very well. He had a very good working relationship with Corwell. Corwell had, in 1946, agreed to a humanitarian visa and he allowed 2,000 um, Jewish survivors to come in. Then it was getting a bit too, you know, obvious. And you've got to remember that Corwell had good relationships with the Jewish community. His own electorate took in Carlton, which was a site of Jewish immigration since the 1870s or a site of settlement. So he he also was a very politically savvy operator and he really didn't want to upset his own um, party. He didn't want to get people offside. He didn't want to provoke anti-Semitism and he really, well, you know, he, he wanted to bring in a type of immigrant that he thought would uh, fit in. A blonde and European. Not, the blonde bolts. The they blonde were known bolts. as Corwell's bol- blonde bolts. Mm. And Jewish immigrants just were th- thought to be too clannish, that they wouldn't want to necessarily work the land, they wouldn't go out and work on the projects, that they would stay within their own communities, and they just weren't the type of immigrant that the that the government had in mind. So this is even, and and we weren't alone. In fact, we took about ten thousand Jewish people between nineteen thirty three and forty and forty five. More than Canada correct. and correct, um, correct, Britain, absolutely. You know, the huge Britain and US took tens of thousands each. But the, so this reaction to the Johan de Witt is even despite the Nuremberg trials, it had a lot of coverage at the time, so it wasn't as if people weren't aware. Uh, yes, but of... the Nuremberg trial, the International Military Tribunal, was not, a, was not a trial about the Holocaust. 
No, no, true. All. I suppose that's true. And because, and in fact, that's the whole argument about that the German people didn't really fully face a lot of the Holocaust yes, re- until right. um, uh, the Eichmann trial in '61. Correct. <laughs> Correct, correct, uh, absolutely. So, so what, when you look at it all and you've yep. absorbed yourself in it, um, like the antipathy that was stirred up, pretty some pretty striking stuff coming from people all around Australia, um, what, does it, what does it tell you about attitudes to... Well, I think Jewish we've got to put, first of all, put a little bit of perspective on that. There were no pogroms in Australia. And people like Leo and Minna, who had lived in Bialystok, for the first 19, 20 years of their life, had experienced pogroms, had experienced devastation, had experienced systemic anti-Semitism that wasn't sanctioned by government. This was not the case in Australia. Oh, you couldn't join the Melbourne Club, but I don't think they would have worried too much about that. And seeing, seeing um, you know, anti-Semitic cartoons in newspapers and that, well, I don't think... I don't think they saw it as a huge concern to their existential existence. I suppose they and were just so re- relieved to be a long, well, long, long way from Europe. Well, well, one of the things that Leo encountered when he and his brothers arrived in 1928, you know, mm. it, was a, it was an interesting and dynamic year, even though it was on the, the cusp of the Great Depression. You know, you could get a free education. You could join the civil service. You could own property. You could um What, you as could a Jewish person, fa- you mean? As a Jewish person. Oh, um, you couldn't do that elsewhere, couldn't you necessarily? Not necessarily. And, in, and well, it and is an interesting that you make the point that um, that in that question that was on the immigration forms, "Are you Jewish?" Jewish wasn't correct. removed until the nineteen fifties. Correct. By nineteen fifty four, it was removed. At which time, most of the Holocaust survivors had already arrived, and they knew that. Well, it was put in, it was ironically put in, it was put in place so that they could, in fact, control, again, the number and type of immigrants that was coming in. And um, and it wasn't removed until 1954, by which time the vast majority of, of Holocaust survivors who were going to come to Australia had already arrived. So they weren't going to be, they knew they weren't going to open the floodgates. Look, let me tell listeners that I'm talking to Margaret Taft, who's written a book about Leo and Minna Fink for the greater good, uh, and alerting us, I think, to a, maybe a slice of our own history that we're not particularly aware of. Let's go to their work, um, both sort of they got around the immigration authorities and they brought Jewish refugees here all very much mass, massively helped by American Jewish philanthropy. Yes. Um, yes. You make the point, that's critical. Then they were very important in helping the s- survivors manage in Australia after they yes. after the war. But it wasn't enough to just get them here. Uh, yes. There were so many sort of pressing um, needs. Well... They could bring well. They once they brought them here, they had to be make sure that they wouldn't be a burden on the state for five years. Now there was no shortage of job opportunities in the post-war period, but there was a huge, huge housing shortage. So they had to make sure that they could house them, find them employment, edu- help educate them, help them with any kind of medical needs that they that they had. So they had to also act as what they called sponsors. So there were individual sponsors. Now, Leo and Minna sponsored people individually, large numbers of people, and would help to find them employment. But the organisation of Jewish welfare 
got the government's approval to act as a corporate sponsor. So they could, under the guise of welfare, bring people out to Australia. And, of course, even though Australian Jewry was, was Australian Jewry is a very small, we're mm. a very small community. We've, we've never been more than 0.5 of 1% of the entire Australian population. We occasionally would drop down to 0.4 or 0.3, never been more than 0.5. So to bring in a huge number of immigrants and to be able to sustain them, because it doubled them. the Melbourne Jewish population, didn't it, the numbers? It did. Mm. It doubled it. But in, in relative terms, when you look at the number of immigrants that came, over a million immigrants that came to Australia up until 54, uh, about 1% were, were Jewish. Jewish. Mm, 17,000, yes. I think. Look, Correct. What, what is really interesting is the challenge from Israel itself. So in 1948, the new and growing community in Australia here really faced a bit of a sort of a huge dilemma. Israel had been established, you know, allegedly a safe haven for Jews around the world. Were people here torn about whether they should be here or there? I think think there was some... Feelings about, and, and, and I, I think I mentioned it in this in the book that there was this debate about, well, do we go? Shouldn't we? You know, we've got limited resources. Shouldn't we be, you know, putting it into establishing a state of Israel? And there were a couple of few people who would say, well, why are we bringing the survivors here when they should all be going to help build a new a new land for the future? Now, Leo Fink was much more pragmatic. He believed that Jewish survivors had the right to choose where they wanted to go. And he also believed that by building a Jewish community in Australia, you were enriching the community here. It wasn't just about restoring the lives of survivors. It was also terribly important about enriching a small, potentially vulnerable community here in Australia. Now, let me ask you a tricky question. Um, do many of the people you know who are maybe sort of um, descendants of that group, do they talk about the other side of the Israeli story, the Palestinians, another sort of beleaguered community? Is, is, does oh, that yes. come up? We're a very diverse community. We, 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 there is always debate. I mean, we, we, for, for, of course there is. And, and, and there are many organisations that work tirelessly towards a sort of re-bringing um, together um, that what is good for both the Palestinians and for the for the Israelis, are oh, absolutely there. And and there are different points of view about it. We're a very diverse community. We're not a homogeneous community. Mm. In that we don't sort of undertake groupthink <laughs> or anything like that. So yes, there is diverse opinion, Look. and there are those who are much more supportive of Israel, and there are those that are not, and there are those that um, see it as as perhaps a, a binary sort of mm. situation. Look, before I let you go, um, Minna's work was distinguished eventually from her husband's uh, after working side by side with him. He, in fact, did go to Israel. She yes. actually, her focus shifted towards feminism and after Leo died, she established the Holocaust Museum. Correct. Um, I, I wonder what you think the modern Australian Jewish community thinks about the, the Finks, like how would they describe. You, you're, you, you're sort of completely staggered by their degree of resolve. But I wonder, is, that, is yeah. that a general feeling? I think for people who know the Fink story or know aspects of the Fink story, they're not surprised. I think that um, 
I think I wanted to bring to light the fullness of their story so that other people can be enlightened a little bit about what can happen, the strength and power of individuals to change a world. And I think that's really what's I think I wanted to bring to the fore. So I think that they're intrigued by the story. Many people will say to me, oh, I knew, I've heard about the Finks. Like I grew up knowing the name Finks, but I didn't really know everything that they had done or more importantly for me, why they had taken it on. And, you know, Minna's last years where she goes sort of back to her work in the Holocaust is really, really about educating against the lessons of racism, the lessons of bigotry, the lessons of what ha- where these things can lead. And they led to a genocide. And they led to this, you know, the word genocide was, was unknown until about 1947. Yes. That's- so I think our, our view of what the Holocaust is now, I think is very much about education, commemoration, memory, and I think very much about educating against not just for Jews, but against all, you know, minority groups. Um, And I think the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne does an outstanding job in in that way. All right. Well, look, you've certainly done them proud. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Margaret Taft. And thank you, Geraldine. That was wonderful. Thank you. And Margaret Taft, uh, Leo and Minna Fink for the greater good, Monash University Publishing.